This is the Athletics of Business Podcast, Episode 26. Welcome to the Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome to the Athletics of Business podcast, and I am your host, Ed Molitor. Today's special guest is Tiffany Bova, and you might want to put your seatbelt on for this introduction because it is amazing. Tiffany is the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Growth IQ. Get smarter about the choices that will make or break your business portfolio. Tiffany has appeared on MSNBC and Yahoo Finance and is a regular contributor to Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Marketing Matters on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, and Huffington Post, in addition to a variety of industry-leading podcasts. She is a top influencer in customer experience, digital transformation, the future of work, and sales, and she was recently recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 37 sales experts you need to follow on Twitter, a LinkedIn top sales influencer, a brand quarterly magazine top 50 marketing thought leader, and one of the most powerful and influential women in California, according to the National Diversity Council. Tiffany also hosts an amazing podcast, What's Next, with Tiffany Bova, which has featured guests from Ariana Huffington to Dan Pink. It continues to rank as one of the top 100 business and marketing podcasts on iTunes and won top sales and marketing podcasts by Top Sales Magazine in 2017. Having delivered over 400 keynote presentations on sales transformation and business model innovation to over 350,000 people around the globe, Bova is highly sought after keynote speaker. Prior to working with Salesforce, she was a VP Distinguished Analyst and Research Fellow at Gartner, where she earned accolades from the best leaders in the technology world, including HP, IBM, Amazon, Oracle, SAP, Cisco, and Microsoft for her cutting-edge analysis and her skill at inventing bold strategies for growth. Bova has also lived in the fast lane of high-tech, leading sales organizations, driving growth, and creating durable, competitive advantages for startups and Fortune 500 companies alike, such as Sprint, Intercom, Interlam, and Gateway Computers. Throughout, she learned how to lead sales and marketing teams in hotly competitive markets. She is considered one of the early pioneers of cloud-based indirect channel programs and completely reinvented go-to market tactics in several hardware and services businesses. Her high-velocity years at the front lines also gave Bova the hands-on expertise executives crave and their strategic partners and made her an authentic, passionate, and brilliant advocate committed to her client's success and prosperity. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today on the Athletics of Business podcast. I am, I'm fired up, I'm honored, and I'm very humbled to have you here today. Oh, well, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. And I, your journey to me is, is amazing. I mean, obviously, we all believe that success is a journey, not a destination. There are so many things that we can talk about. If you would see my, if you could see my desk right now, I have uh, several pages of notes from from different interviews of, of of you that I've listened to and some things I've read. So, can you just kind of take us along to the beginning of your journey to where you are now and and what you're doing? 
oh my goodness, like we only have. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I did say 35, 40 yeah, minutes. 35 well, minutes. Okay, however so, you, yeah, however you see fit, Tiffany. So I'll give you the Reader's Digest version for those of you listening who know what Perfect. Reader's Digest is. I will give you the, the Reader's Digest version. Uh, you know, so I, I always joke, I call myself a recovering seller um, because I started my career uh, really in sales. I always found that that was something I was naturally good at. Um, and so I, I started selling technology and sort of grew up there, you know, individual quota carrying sales rep. And then I managed teams and then I managed bigger teams and bigger teams, you know, and it sort of just grew that way. But mm -hmm. then along the way, I expanded my understanding of marketing and started running marketing teams. And then one more step further, sort of started running uh, customer service organizations as well. So I was a practitioner, if you will, on sales marketing and customer service, um, both for hardware and software and very, very early in the cloud days, sort of mm -hmm. uh, 1999 to 2003-ish, 2004-ish. Uh, and then my last sort of quota-bearing role, I ran a division uh, in the, of the indirect sales organization for gateway computers. And then I landed at Gartner. So I had the privilege of working there for a decade and I, and I left uh, about two and a half years ago as a, as a research fellow covering sales transformation and digital transformation and really go to market models and, and how companies had to sort of rethink that. And now I've spent the last two and a half years at Salesforce as the growth and innovation evangelist, uh, having the honor and pleasure of traveling around the world uh, and speaking to so many amazing uh, executives and companies right. that are just out there fighting the fight on behalf of their customers. Well, what amazes me, one of the many things that amazes me about you is how do you keep your message? You talk about going from sales to marketing, working with customer service, and all the year you spent at Gartner, and now here you are speaking, you've done over 400 keynote presentations on sales transformation and business model innovation to over 350,000 people. But the thing that amazed me, how do you keep your message with all the knowledge that you have and all the things that you've learned and shared, how do you keep your message so tight? Is that a challenge? I will tell you that, uh, you know, even during my time at Gartner uh, and now, I work from home. And I say that sort of in air quotes because I'm mm -hmm. on the road so much, uh, <laughs> but I'm not in an office. And so right. the way I am able to, one, keep the thinking fresh is because of those interactions I have when I'm on the road. So whether I'm speaking to an individual executive you know, on a one-on-one situation or just a company, you know, we're doing a executive briefing or I have a meeting you know, with a Salesforce sales, uh, sales rep and I go and I'm meeting a customer, like that conversation is sort of a touch point. And then when I'm on stage and I get a chance to speak, uh, small audience or big audience, you know, I'm feeding off of are people resonating with the message that I'm saying. You can see it, you know, I mean, unless you're, the lights are such that you can't see it, but you can sort of see it. But beyond that, people will stop you in the hall. And I actually ask, what didn't they agree with? I, I do that a lot where I'll say, what did I say that you, it just didn't hit home for you. And so each of those every single day, every single week, every single month, over the course of 12 or 13 years, it's, I have this, I guess my superpower, if you will, is this ability to aggregate lots of data points and be able to succinctly put it in a story that resonates with people who I'm speaking to. And and I think I always get feedback that that those in the audience or that that I have a conversation with will say, you know, it sounded like you were talking about my business. 
Like it was like you were talking right to me. Like that's exactly what we're struggling with. And the only way you can stay that uh, close to the pulse of the market in the category that I talk about is with lots and lots of conversations. That's that's phenomenal. And, and when you talk about the message of commu- communicating and talking right to them, as you went from sales to marketing to customer service, truth be told, those those can be three different types of languages with how you communicate with people. Was was is that something that got you ready to speak to all these folks and to be able to communicate all your data points in such a succinct way? I think what allowed me to do that was being a practitioner and not just an academic that studies it mm-hmm. gave me both sides of the coin, right? Because right. Yep. Uh, I understood the, the little subtleties and the nuances of actually being a sales leader or having to run a marketing campaign or trying to bridge the gap between sales and marketing or how do you improve customer service when I've sat in customer service center, call centers and listened in on calls and tried to really fix some of the things um, and amplify the things we did well. And, and so I think being a practitioner gave me a really unique perspective as an academic when I spent my time at Gartner. And that blend of those two things, uh, specifically, as you mentioned, Ed, re- really going from sales and understanding marketing as much as I could really, and then understanding customer service as much as I could, because my skill is really selling. Uh, But what was fascinating to me is if I began to work more closely with marketing to understand what it meant to sell, the easiest way for me to do that was I actually took marketers out on sales calls with me Mm -hmm. and so that they could see the materials that they were putting in front of sales to use as enablement tools in action or inaction. as sometimes right. the case would be. And, and it really helped my marketing team understand that they were spending time on things that were not very valuable in the customer's eyes. And then from a customer service perspective, uh, having everybody in sales and marketing actually sit in on customer service calls, marketing very quickly realized that they should be enabling customer service as much as they enable sales because after the sale, customer service is that touch point. And so right. um, I, I think that it was accidental, my sort of understanding of those three. But even when I'm on stage, I always joke, uh, or when I'm an executive with executives, when I, how I started this out is like, I still bleed sales blood and I pick on marketing because it's fun to do um, from a salesperson's <laughs> perspective. Um, but I want people to really feel the opportunity and understand the opportunity with customer service. And so I've really spent time on that lately. The, the ability to be able to go from sales to marketing, though, there had to be some sort of level of trust you had to develop with the folks you worked with. And, and that obviously takes communication skills. What, what were the, the, you know, a couple of the things that you really focused on in terms of communicating when you transitioned from sales to marketing in, in terms of communication? Yeah, that's a great question because I would tell you that the first couple of times I did it, I did it wrong. Um, you know, I sort of went in and, and, and sort of told them, uh, what I thought, mm-hmm. which was not the right, right. approach. Yeah. Um, and so probably the second time I did it incorrectly, uh, <laughs> uh, I decided to change it up a little bit and I said, okay, how can I communicate this message? Um, and when I say I, I don't literally mean I have to be the one that communicates it, but how can I sort of share this? philosophy or way of thinking or the subtleties of actually selling to marketers who already have an aversion to sellers for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
I had some really great advice um, from from an outside uh, company was helping me sort of strategize on on ways to in, improve sort of the the things we were facing. And one of the uh, consultants said to me, "Look, like we just can't make this an emotional conversation. Like we've got to give the facts and let them come to the conclusion we want them to come to on their own." And it was one of those lessons that I've now applied in so many times and in so many ways where literally the little quick comment I made about having marketers join a sales call, but not as a marketer. Literally, I had them go in and act like they were a new hire salesperson Hmm. so that the customer did not change what they said, you know, based on what we were saying, like, oh, I don't want to, you know, tell the marketer that the PowerPoint presentation or the collateral was a waste of time because I don't want to hurt their feelings. But the customer would most definitely say it to a salesperson, (laughs) right? So um, once I did that, it it was this miraculous turnaround where I no longer had to argue the point or debate the point. They kind of came to it on their own. They were like, look, we're just spending time on things customers don't value. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's one of the greatest lessons is uh, companies get very stuck in the what they want to do instead of thinking about what the customers want them to do. In, in addition to that, did you, was there kind of an exchange, so to speak, where, you know, I believe one of the things in communication is um, going to where the person is and, and not just physically, but, you know, emotionally, mentally, what, what their thinking is. And did you, okay, so they were new hire sales folks and that helped them understand you, that helped them understand the customer. But did you do something along those lines in trying to, you know, figure out and get to know what was going through uh, marketing's mind? Yeah, and I would say this. I'd say, you know, while uh, I wasn't, you know, classically trained as a marketer, you know, I, I remember when someone you know, very early in my career go, well, you know, we have to go through the four P's. And in my head, I'm like, <laughs> what are the four P's? Like, you know, I had no idea, right? right. So I had yeah. to go look it up, um, you know, and back then there was not the Google. So I had right. to kind of, you know, figure yeah. it out. Um but, but ultimately, uh, you know, it was a matter of um, really understanding what they were trying to achieve uh, and putting myself in their shoes as well. And, and I would say the thing that became really clear to me was the metrics that marketing uses, the way they go about sort of obtaining budget, uh, the ROI on those spends and, and how they make decisions on where they should spend and how they should spend, you know, over time, if we're talking from, you know, kind of. 2000 to 2006, uh, it was very different, right? It was search engine optimization was just showing up, you know, tagging banner ads on the internet was just showing up, you know, print and trade shows was still the dominant spend. And so it was this massive transition between sort of the standard way, uh, traditional way that things have been done to moving towards this more internet driven at the time, the World Wide web, you know, what that was doing. And so we were all learning at the same time. And I think that helped them realize that I didn't know, they didn't know, neither one of us knew. So let's go on this learning journey together. And I think it went a long way for them to use your words at to trust me that I was there to, to make sure that they were going to be successful and that it was really about making sales and marketing uh, more successful together. And what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in that process when you first started doing this? 
Oh, I would absolutely say what you said, right? You know, being a seller, they're like, oh, you know, she doesn't understand us. You know, mm -hmm. salespeople don't follow up on our leads. We work hard. We do all the stuff. Mm -hmm. We're underappreciated. Like, but then I also had to, you know, put a mirror in, in, in the face of marketing as well to be like, look, this is what they hear from you. We don't really need salespeople. You know, now everything's being, you know, as time was going on, right, driven to the web that people click through a banner and go right to an e-commerce page and buy, what do we need salespeople for? And that was the wrong approach on both sides, right? Sales saying, we don't get good leads from marketing. We don't use the collateral. Marketers saying, salespeople don't follow up on the leads. Like, we don't really need them anymore. That we had to find a way where there was sort of this common ground, this, this sort of zone of respect for each other. And mm -hmm. the only way I could do that was to get them to, part, you know, sort of work with each other. So I would assign salespeople to a marketing campaign to say, hey, while they're developing the promo, like this salesperson is going to be your point person and they'd have to run stuff by. So the salesperson would say, hey, you know, I'm telling you that, that customers are not going to see the value if you waive the setup fee and then charge them three months and they have to pay three months. Like that's not really, that's not really an incentive I think that's going to work for them. And so marketers would then hear real-time feedback. Salespeople would hear, well, no, this is why we do it. You know, we're trying to get uh, the acquisition cost you know, paid back within 60 days because that's the, you know, and so sales would understand. So then when that salesperson went back to the floor and other salespeople would complain about the latest promo that marketing had launched, that salesperson almost came to the defense of marketing. And then mm -hmm. it, it just really naturally happened, but it didn't happen quickly. Like it was over, it was over time. Uh, and you had to find the right rhythm of getting people to um, engage with each other and get very uncomfortable because salespeople to marketer, marketer to salespeople. So uh, I think that went, went a long way. So you just said something that is huge <laughs> to get really uncomfortable. In other words, they need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. How did you get folks to do that? And how, how do you still get folks to do that? Oh, I think that's the hardest thing. Uh, I think, you know, I use a quote in, um, in my presentations now from Ginny Rometty that like growth and comfort don't coexist, <laughs> like, right. Uh, that you just have to get uncomfortable right. in all kinds of ways, sales, marketing, product development, you know, everything right now, because the pace is so quick that just when you start to get comfortable, it's time to get uncomfortable again. Right. I, and I don't mean everything, but you know, it's not a hundred percent of the time I'm a hundred percent uncomfortable. It's, you know, I, I think if you're 30% uncomfortable all the time or for, you know, you have to find your place, but mm -hmm. ultimately it's a matter of uh, if you're feeling comfortable, something's wrong because uh, it's just not consistently that predictable at this point in time. So all of this contributes to what I would think is a culture that you would consider worth fighting for. In other words, we're doing all this work. We're, we're getting outside our comfort zone. We're creating this environment where we're going to get to the other side of fear now. And I'm going to go back to the new hire um, mindset. Now you go out and you want to get the best of the best to contribute to this culture that's worth fighting for. Do you compromise that? And I shouldn't use the word compromise, but it comes down to a culture fit through an extremely high level of talent who who wins the day on that one well i think i think this is a a very active conversation now around this quote-unquote culture fit because if culture fit means we want someone who thinks like us 
then there's kind of no diversity of thought. Right. So I'm a huge proponent of diversity of thought because I think it brings in unique perspectives and points of view. So diversity and inclusion to me is not just, you know, between male and female or between race or religion, or it, it, I also look at um, the way people think. Uh, so you have extroverts, which salespeople are tremendously extroverts more often than not versus an introvert. And so, you know, let's just say the marketer is an introvert and the salesperson's an extrovert and they're trying to have a conversation about what to do. Who's going to win that conversation? And I don't mean win mm -hmm. like that they're right. I mean, win because the introvert's just like, I, I'm just not going to have this conversation, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, which is never good. So culture fit is one that you have to be very careful of. So they think like us, culture fit, not a good culture fit. Culture right. fit like well, they're really uh, capable of working in an environment where there's not a lot of structure. They're self-starters. They're, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, but then you need some adult supervision. <laughs> so it depends what role right. they're in. So culture fit is, uh, you know, a really interesting comment uh, and, and sort of thing to think about when looking to hire, especially in a sales organization. Uh, that you can't have all of these, um, you know, to use the sports analogy, right? You can't have for the, the you know, Ryder Cup, you can't have eight Tiger Woods. Right. Like, it, it, number one, it's not possible. They're all very good golfers. They're all winners in their own right. You know, or do you need, you know, all, you know, kind of clutch and short game player plus someone who's an overall really good player, someone who's really good on this particular kind of course or that, I mean, you just need mixture because the, the power is in the combination of the team. Um, and, and, and I would say it has to all though have an understanding of what the culture of the business actually is, what the personality of the brand is to make sure that they're always doing what's right to align themselves to those things. Yeah. And it's funny because when you, when you talk about culture, you don't really realize all the different things that go into it, the introverts, the extroverts. And, and I guess when I pose that question and I look at culture um, and in my time coaching college basketball and, um, you know, working in the recruiting industry, when I talk about fits, I'm talking about, okay, are they, are they an authentic human being with, with a, a solid foundation of core values? You know, what is, what is their work ethic? And are they going to come in and I, I don't want them to think like us and they can uh, challenge the status quo, but are they going to value being a part of something bigger than themselves? And, you know, we've all been burnt by where we took the superstar thinking that we're going to get them to maybe change their ways than what they were like at their previous organization, but all the red flags were there, but we just ignored them. And I guess that's what I'm asking uh, by the culture fit, which, which you answer, which is, um, it is, it's a very hot conversation and it's, you know, it kind of sometimes boils down to what came first, a chicken, you know, or an egg. I mean, are you gonna, are you gonna not think someone can adjust and, and buy into the culture or believe into your culture? But, um, you know, along those lines, and this is gonna, you know, I talk about a culture we're fighting for, this will seem a little bit ironic, but a, a safe environment to fail. How important is that? And when I talk about safe, I'm not talking about soft. But how important is a safe environment to fail? Yeah, and, and I think that uh, it is more likely, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I, I don't need it to be reckless. I mean, I often mm -hmm. often people will say speed is the new currency, and I and I don't disagree with that. But 
I don't need people to be sort of Steve Jobs or Mark Benioff or, you know, somebody who's going to be way out in front of the market, but I, I need you to be one or two quarters ahead and meet your customers when they arrive. So mm-hmm. I don't need speed and then sloppy, right? So, and I feel that same way uh, around culture, right? I think that y- you have to think um, that there has to be a fit because a bad hire is so much more expensive uh, to, in, in depending where your listeners are in the world, in some regions, you cannot fire somebody. So then you've made a bad hire, and now it's now it's your responsibility to find a place where this person is going to be the most effective and successful versus saying, look, we need to be really get really much better at hiring and what kinds of skills do we need, what things are going to make us more successful. And I think that goes back to diversity of thought, but also just um, – you know, are they risk adverse? Are they comfortable, right? Are they willing to to take to take uh, advantage of things that are going on in the marketplace? And the only way that those kinds of you know scale fast or scrum teams, you know, or or agile development and all that is is if management allows the freedom for employees, um, all employees, to make a mistake and it's not going to cost them their job. You know, obviously if lives are not at stake, I mean, just the general, like that campaign was terrible. Like let's not Mm -hmm. fire them for it. What did we learn from it? Let's do it better next time. You know, they have to trust the fact. And that goes back to your culture question. If that's the culture and it's someone who uh, wants to try things, but has never been allowed to at other places, they might really thrive at your company. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and, you know, talking about hiring and talking about hiring mistakes, how do you have to adjust the hiring process mentally in a tight labor market? What kind of things do you need to get really, really dialed into really good uh, and efficient? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot uh, lately around artificial intelligence being used in the hiring process, you Mm -hmm. know, to just be able to um, scan through resumes and really look for the kinds of fits that would then get an, an interview. Uh, and, I, and I think that it has a lot to do with understanding what your own culture is and then what kind of fit it would be. Because I think for many people, uh, if we're talking about sales, you know, lots of sales leaders grew up in sales and just because they were really good sellers does not mean they're really good managers. And then they mm-hmm. may get promoted again. And now they're like in a, in a senior leadership position mm-hmm. and they don't know what it actually means to hire and understand what the culture of their sales force, two words, what their sales force <laughs> actually is. So that right. when they go to HR and say, look, I need people who are not going to be face-to-face sellers, right? I need some that are going to be just really inbound, you know, conversation, relationship kinds of people. So I almost don't want them to have hardcore sales skills. Maybe they were in hospitality, right? Maybe they were in a big, maybe they came from the customer service organization that they're much more customer focused than selling focused. And I need that kind of personality that would require a manager to really understand the culture of his own, his or her own organization and I don't mean that it needs to be different than the company. I mean the dynamics within that. It, you know, once again, right. going back to sports, right? You think teams. Um, when LeBron James and Dwayne Wade first got together, right, that they didn't mm-hmm. work well together, right? Until they figured out how do we take two A-type extrovert person, big personality, really capable and skilled basketball players, and put them together, or Shaq and Kobe. I mean, you can rattle it off. 
but really well-oiled uh, teams, like you'd say, like the New England Patriots, where there are lots of leaders, but the team works so well together mm-hmm. and their recruitment strategy is so focused on what can we add to the team? Where do we have needs? Not we need another Tom Brady as a backup quarterback. Like that's not, why would we use that in the recruitment? What we need to make sure he's protected. So maybe we need to invest a little bit more in the, you know, the offensive line as an example, right? So I I think that understanding what your team is, uh, whatever that is in the organization, and then what kind of skills you need, and then making sure you really understand the dynamics between the leaders in your team and the high performers, because it's your job uh, to make sure everybody is on the same page. So let's say, and I I love that, let's go back to LeBron and D-Wade. And you have two high-performing, you know, A-type personalities. It's just not working at first. What kind of adjustments do you need to make? I mean, you get, do you have to get to the singleness of purpose? Do you have to dial into uh, the team or the organizations? Why? I mean, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, well, I think it comes from both sides. And I think that that's another message as well, that it, it, it's not only the coaches um, in that particular case, right, that had to find a way to get – sort of the vision of pulling these two players together with us with the goal of we want to bring a championship to Florida, right? So it was very much like, what can we do? That's our goal. We're either going to all be rowing in the same direction because if we're rowing in different directions, you know, it's just not going to work. So from a coaching standpoint, it's, I need to share the vision of what we're doing and what we're made of and why we made the decisions we made. But simultaneously, you also have to, the players themselves, they have to find a way to come together. Like Mm -hmm. it it can't just be leadership sort of expounding this great vision about what they expect from players and, and you know, the vision and the goal and providing the platform by which they could have a very successful championship team. Like all of those things were in place and they were dropping a whole lot of cash to do it. (laughs) On the flip side, the players actually have to want to do it. Right. And so it's like salespeople have to want to use the CRM system. The marketing Mm. people have to want to work more closely with sales. You know, sales has to want, you know, has to want to um, understand the relationship between the first sale and then customer service for ongoing lifetime value. Like if there's no personal commitment that it can't be everything around you as an individual has to change because you are just going to stay on your course. That's not the culture, right? That's not going to make a winning team period full stop. Unless you're completely an individual contributor listening to this and you own your own business and you are the sales marketing customer service billing legal department for your own company. But if you work with other people going back to uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like, you know, for me, you know, growing a, a, a business has everything to do with growing as a person and you have to self disrupt, right? You have to be willing to be uncomfortable yourself and do things you're not comfortable with. So going back to the example, you know, I don't know the, you know, obviously I don't know the inner conversations between LeBron and D Wade, right? I was not sitting there while they were discussing this. Um, but I'm guessing that they probably had a number of conversations with each other. We've, we've got to figure out how we can make this work. We're the leaders of this team. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a whole, you know, city and state behind us with it. You know, the owners have spent a lot of money on us. We, we've got to, we've got to work out our differences, uh, off court. So on court and, and it took, what was it? I don't, cause I'm not a, uh, uh, 
It took longer than Pat Riley would have liked. That's for sure. Yeah, but it was like a couple of years, right? It was yeah, a couple was. of years before. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. And, yep. and year wasn't year one like horrific? Like everyone it was, was like, awful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I'm trying to do this from memory, but but uh, you know, ultimately, um, it took a couple of years. So now let's go back to the analogy in business. You can't just bring in a new leader and expect. You know, when I say leader, I don't mean CEO. I mean someone on the leadership team and expect them to turn around the culture of a sales organization or a marketing organization or customer service or all three working together in a quarter or in two quarters or in four quarters. Like, let's go back to that example, you know, with, with LeBron and D-Wade, right? I mean, it takes time. Culture doesn't become toxic overnight and it doesn't become amazing overnight. It takes time and it's a commitment every single day. Every single day, it's a commitment, right? Show up to practice, do what you're supposed to do, you know, or you do Kobe Bryant and you show up three hours before practice and get in 300 shots before practice right. even begins. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, that goes back to the fundamentals. And Kobe is just, he was unbelievable. And you said something in, Kobe would speak to this too, but you said something that was interesting. Self-disrupt. I love that. I mean, you can self-disrupt collectively, but also individually because we all believe that, you know, we is much greater than me. But I also firmly believe that in order to contribute as much as you possibly can to we, you have to work on me. And how have you in your career, could you share maybe a story or two or an example of how you've self-disrupted yourself to get outside your comfort zone to take your career to the next level? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say the, the biggest adjustment for me, I mean, you know, the sales marketing and customer service, I didn't think was that big of an adjustment for me. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with the, the company was 130 million recurring revenue at the time. So big, but not, you know, a multi-billion dollar brand I was running, right? So the teams mm -hmm. weren't so massive that I couldn't sort of kind of get my arms around it. What was a really big transition for me was going from being sort of the practitioner on the sales marketing service side to becoming an academic, quote unquote, on the analyst side when I went to Gartner. That was a really big adjustment for me. Um, one, because I am a speaker communicator, not a writer communicator. So I had to learn how to translate how I spoke to paper. Right. Uh, you know, and writing research reports. And then, you know, the whole uh, process of we have partner has something called inquiry calls and clients would call in for half hour increments of advice and they would ask questions all over the map. So, you know, you'd have one call would be, you know, Hey, I'm a startup in, um, you know, Barcelona and I'm about to hire my first salesperson. Like, what should I hire for? And, you know, you hang up the phone, pick up the phone, dial into another call. And it's, you know, I work for, you know, the, largest software company in the world and I'm trying to social sell train 35,000 sales reps in one hour. That's the two conversations. And it's like wow. ping pong, right? You got to, yeah. okay, let me put my hat on for that question. Or <laughs> yeah. what about account-based marketing? Or what about indirect channel programs? Or what about inbound selling or outbound selling? Or what about vertical versus geographic? Or what about, I mean, so you had to be like, and, and three inches deep and miles wide, right? Wow. How, how much you'd have to be able to. So it was this like nonstop consumption of, of input, both reading Gartner research and just, you know, I'd read one to two to three reports every single day. So I'd know what we were saying. So if someone asked me about the fourth industrial revolution or the nexus of forces or whatever, I'd know what they were talking about. So I had to stay mm -hmm. up on what we were saying, but then I also had to stay up on what the big 25 tech companies in the world were doing. And so, 
I'd say that 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 was a big adjustment for me to to really start consuming information and data and where can I get it and then how do I aggregate it and then how do I get it on paper and then how do I communicate that out in half hour bursts and you know and and how do I make sure that the customers are getting value uh, when they engage with me because it wasn't an inexpensive proposition to to have a client and so ultimately I'd say that was the biggest adjustment and I've carried that forward even now where I consume a ton of content people are you know will toss a question at me and I I just need to know what they're asking. I may not know the answer, but mm-hmm. I at least need to know what they're asking so that I can say, you know, I don't really know what's going on there. But when I first heard about that, I thought this, you know, and so, but it's really hard to stay up on, on everything that's coming out, you know, on a daily basis. So it, it's, it's becoming a student of your profession, whatever that is, Love whatever, that. you know, that yeah. is really, really important. And I think um, coming from not being a student, in college, just kind of, you know, <laughs> making my way through, if you will. Uh, uh, but at a great school, though. At a great school, Arizona State. school to do that. Yeah. Arizona perfect State was a great school, but I did yeah. not get a business degree, and I did not get on to get my MBA. And so, ultimately, um, I've had to learn how to be a student. How did you prioritize with all this different data dump and all this information that you you had to learn or read and all the reports? How did you prioritize your day? How did you prioritize uh, what you you know what task you attacked first? Because obviously this is something that just kept evolving over time in your career. Yeah, and I often get asked this question because uh, I put out quite a bit of content, if you will. Uh, and and I'm I'm pretty active on social, but but I'm also uh, you know very active just personally, right? So you know in a given week I'm two or three places somewhere in the world. Last week I was in London, Oslo, and Stockholm. This week I'm going to be in Sydney. Then I'm in New York. Then I'm in Toronto. That you know I mean it's just sort of um, Nuts, ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, airplane time is my most effective use of time because I have no distractions. Uh, mm. I, I was a little bummed when wireless hit airplanes because then it was like, <laughs> darn. Yeah, now people I have access to you all of a sudden. Distracted, right? So um, airplane time was when I would answer all my emails and do my writing. And as well, you know, I'd take a stack of magazines and sort of like catch up on everything from a magazine perspective and then, you know, listen to podcasts. And so airplane time and travel time is really my consumption time and my thinking time because I'm not, you know, I, I'm not... There's no, I can't get up and go walk somewhere. Like I, I am where I am, right? Uh, and, and so that has always been really helpful to me. So I think it's just a matter of finding that place where you can give yourself permission to consume versus putting out, right? So if it's an hour a day or two hours a day, I mean, I at least spend two hours a day, uh, if not more on that consumption. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I may only output meaning, you know, between tweets and blogs and presentations, I might output two or three hours. So it's, it's a matter of taking in equally as much as I put out. It, it's the only way I can stay on top of things. But you have to carve that time out and you have to give yourself permission um, to say no to certain things, to allow yourself the time. Because if you're just constantly running, you just, it, it would be like, you know, playing in a tournament every single day and never right. having time to practice. Right. Well, how did you, so there's five hours of your day right there. How did you, let's talk about the book, Growth IQ, Find the Time to Write a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Um, 
how enjoyable was it for you? Obviously, you, you produce amazing content. You, you love producing content. How enjoyable, how time consuming. I mean, let's, let's dig into the book and, and what it has to offer. Yeah, it was a that was a journey for me as well. I mean, when I first started thinking about writing the book to the moment I wrote the first word of the book was probably mm -hmm. two or three years, just kind of thinking okay. about if I was gonna write one, what I would I wanna what would I wanna write it about, what kind of book would I wanna write? And someone gave me some great advice and said, Hey, listen, you should write a book you would wanna read. And when they said that, it put me on this whole path of I actually read, I think it was like seventy-five. It was at least 75, could have been closer to 100 business books over the course of almost year and a half-ish mm -hmm. of all the best ones that were out there. And I, and I did it very specifically to say, okay, what's been said? How was it said? What did I think was missing? What did I think my experience could add to the conversation? I didn't want to say what had already been said, like how do I tell the story I want to tell in my voice? And by doing that, it really helped set me up for um, what I wanted the book to actually feel like mm -hmm. when someone read it. And so right. I spent quite a bit of time on that. And I think uh, my publisher would agree. I was, I was a little bit stubborn as it related to that because I had a very specific <laughs> kind of idea in my head about mm -hmm. what I wanted that to feel like. Then it was, okay, now I need to write the book, right? So right. once again, I'm a speaker, not a writer. And so I kind of gave presentations to myself, recorded it, you know, it transcribed it and then it gave myself kind of a rough starting point uh, and got, you know, thoughts down on paper. And then I realized that I wanted to keep it in this very specific format that I stamped out through the book. So each chapter has the exact same feel, the exact same look. And so as you're mm -hmm. reading, you know exactly what to expect. And there's 30 case studies in the book. Uh, but each case study is like 2,500 words. Going back to, I wanted to write a book I would read. That's about how long my attention span is. Okay. So it was <laughs> like, if someone reads this story, can it stand alone? And then if they put it down and pick it up and read the next story, will it continue, right? Because not the, the goal is to have someone read the book more than like the second or third chapter, because usually people mm -hmm. stop there. So right. <laughs> it's how do I get them to want to feel like it's not a heavy read, but very mm -hmm. full of valuable content and digestible so that they could jump around or, or consume it in whatever way they wanted. And so once I landed on what I wanted the architecture of the book to look like, then I had to say, what's the story arc? How do I take people on this journey with me? And then when that started to happen, I think the book really started to come together. And I almost did 70% of that uh, handwritten editing. So wow. I, would, I would print it out. I was working with, a, with an editor and uh, I would print out uh, the work literally. Uh, and when I would fly, I would handwrite edits uh, and then drop them off <laughs> at his house on my way uh, home from a trip. And the next day the edits would be uploaded and that, you know, and so it was this very iterative process, but it absolutely handled, happened when I was flying. Um, but great. the book is, I don't know, 78, 79,000 words ish, something like that, but it was 95,000 words. And so I had to take 20,000 words out of it. Uh, and so was that hard for you? Well, it's funny, right? I'm not a writer and then boom, it's yeah. 95,000 words. <laughs> well, so, it is, it is 30, 30 case studies across 10 growth paths, which is amazing. 
So, and you said each case study was about what, 2,500 words? Yeah, something like that, right? It's super yeah. digestible, right? You can read it yeah. very quickly. I'm not going to tell the life and times of Red Bull. I'm not going to tell the life and times of Lego or Mattel. Like I'm just, you know, it's right. a very specific point in time and I'm trying to make a point and example in the story. I tried to cross section those case studies across various industries as well as, you know, kind of home countries of where they're headquartered. Um, and then, you know, small, medium enterprise, uh, consumer, you know, B2B, like, you know, I just tried to give it um, a flavor that, that everyone could relate to. And I think that the feedback that I've gotten so far has been that people found value in all the stories, even those they were less likely to have thought they would find some value in, like the story of yeah. Kylie Jenner or Mattel or um, mm -hmm. something like that, or Sephora, where they'd be like, I didn't think I was gonna learn anything. And I totally learned something from that story. So yeah. Yeah. That was good. That means, that means you nailed it. That's huge. I mean, that's, that's one of the better compliments you can receive right there. Oh, I agree. And, and, you know, going back to what I said about, I want to hear what you didn't like when people say to me, you know, I really liked uh, the book. I'll say what stood out and then what didn't you like? And so it's, it's only a, you know, obviously I'm not talking to everybody who's read the book, but to the people who have been willing to give me feedback online uh, or in person, um, only a couple of people didn't like the format and structure and sort of the attention I put to the feel of it with sketch mm -hmm. notes instead of PowerPoint and Excel. You know, it's much lighter in the imagery. And then mm -hmm. I highlighted things that if, you know, people like me are not going to read an entire page or an entire five pages, if they were only going to read what I highlighted, I was okay with that. And so I highlighted what I knew I wanted them to get out of it. Because wow. sometimes you just scan through a chapter really quickly. Like once again, mm -hmm. write the book you would read. And how did you read your the books, Tiffany Bova, with, you know, tough to keep my attention for long periods of time. Like I can't have it be dry. It has to have a little humor. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, again, absolutely. How would you keep someone like me engaged in a book like that? Um, and and so a handful of people kind of didn't appreciate it, but the majority did, and and that that was good enough for me. Well, and that's, that had to be a lot of fun and, and still getting the feedback that you're getting has to be, has to be quite enjoyable. Now you said something about Red Bull. Okay. The story of Red Bull, but that triggered something in my mind. You have a couple nicknames and one of the nicknames I heard, I believe it was Tom Peters call you was the blonde espresso of growth. Is yes. that correct? Yes. And that comes <laughs> from it. Starbucks. That comes from Starbucks. Blonde yep. espresso is, yeah, yep. yeah. Okay. I had, I had one and, this morning. And because yep. he's the Red Bull of management. So there was, and, a, yeah. Yep, okay. That's what made, that's exactly. And then, then I, wasn't there a cayenne pepper in there too? too? Oh yeah. That was uh, Kim <laughs> from, uh, yes, from Capgemini. She called me the cayenne pepper of presentations. Like, you know, you're just not going to be bored, uh, you know, if I'm up on stage telling the story. So yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, I'll take it, you know. Well, I love it. And obviously a lot of fun, a ton of fun. And I appreciate your time and everything today. Uh, Growth IQ, we'll have a link to that on our show notes uh, at theathleticsofbusiness.com. Uh, you can also connect to the website, the podcast website through our website, the Molitor group, the group.com. But Tiffany, you're active on very active on social media. Where can folks connect with you and find out more? Yeah. So, uh, follow me, uh, on Twitter at Tiffany and it's T I F F A N I underscore Bova. It's Tiffany Bova on Instagram. It's Tiffany Bova on LinkedIn. And then TiffanyBova.com uh, is my site that sort of shares a lot of the content. I have a what I have a podcast called What's Next on iTunes. Great, great podcast. Yeah, that sort of goes you know across the board uh, with all kinds of really cool people. I just had Michael Lombardi on from a sports perspective. You know, he is 
you know, amazing on the, in the NFL uh, 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 business. And really the comments I made about teams came from him. So you should listen to that one. Uh, and then I blog a lot and, and try to, you know, give back as much as I can at, at other people's events as well. Right. Well, Tiffany, I, I appreciate it. I love your podcast. I love the work you do. Um, I cannot stress enough how uh, grateful I am for your time today and for, for all that you do. Great. Well, thank you Ed, again for having me. It was really a pleasure. All right, Tiffany, take care. Thank you for listening to the Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness. 